Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. The plane is fine. There is no problem with it. But occasionally an airplane will crash because you just can't predict every single failure that can occur. You mentioned the pop on the takeoff videos, and I've watched those takeoff videos a bunch of times. And indeed, I believe I could hear a pop. That pop was probably what we call a compressor stall, which is the first indication of a jet engine not working properly. And the main reason in Canada for compressor stalls is damaged compressors, or <laughs> compressors, excuse me, compressor blades due to it having ingested a bird. A bird can take out a small jet engine like the J85 in the Tudor without any problem at all. And I suspect that we're going to find either there was a bird strike or some form of internal failure within the engine, which caused the pilots to eventually have to eject. Well, when you say bird strike, uh, that's the term I heard back in the day with Sully, and uh, he landed on the Hudson River. It was the same thing, a bird strike, right? That's right. Only it wasn't a single bird. He took in a whole flock of birds. I'm not sure whether it was 10, 12, 20, or whatever. One can be enough if it's a good size one. I mean, a starling isn't probably going to bring down a tutor, but a goose certainly would, or even a good-sized duck. So all you got to do is take something like that in the front end, the plane corn cobs or the engine corn cobs itself, and now you're in a situation where you're not very high and and you've got to make a fast decision to get out of the airplane. We saw the aircraft, the airplane nose up considerably, and we call that exchanging altitude or airspeed for altitude. If you've got excess speed, you can climb some, even if the engine isn't running particularly well, but only some. And basically what we've always tried to teach pilots is climb until you figure you're just about out of climbing capability, but before you stop climbing, jump out then, because that gives you what's called an up vector. You're actually being thrown upwards by your own airplane at the same time as the ejection seat takes over. What you saw if you watched the videos of this unfortunate accident is that by the time the pilots ejected from the aircraft, they were virtually going sideways. They weren't getting any extra altitude from the ejection seat. In fact, they were probably losing. The plane's going down at, say, 5,000 feet a minute, and they're going up at three or 400 feet a minute max in their ejection seat. That's not the way to survive, sadly. So how much altitude would you need uh, in order to eject safely and give yourself enough time to come down? Well, the Tudor, if it's in the same configuration as it was when I was flying it, and I believe it is, uh, has a, a 070 seat. That is, you have to be, you can be on the ground. You could be actually running up the runway and something dreadful happened. You could eject as long as you're going 70 knots. That 70 knots is just enough to create some airflow to pull the chute off your back. The, the seat will be taken high enough 
for a parachute jump, but you need to have some force to pull that chute out of the package that it's in and deploy it. And now what happened with these individuals is they're already going down at, I'm guessing, 5,000 or more feet a minute because it looks to me like the plane had already stalled and perhaps even entered a, the beginnings of a spin. So they're going down at maybe 5,000 feet a minute, and the, the seat simply isn't capable of counteracting that amount of velocity downward. Yeah, it's all physics. Jock Williams with us, Global News Radio's aviation expert. When it comes to these types of precision demonstrations, uh, I'm always fascinated how they're coordinated because it looks like from the ground anyway, they're almost wingtip to wingtip and going at, you know, I don't know how fast they're going, but faster than a, a car on the, the highway. That's uh, right. How do, how do they coordinate all of that? Well, flying formation is just simply a matter of picking out a couple of landmarks on the airplane that you're flying formation on and then just keeping them in the same place. So say you put the light on the wingtip over the roundel, the, the maple leaf that's in a circle that Canadian Air Force planes have, and you hold that position regardless of what the guy beside you does, just as long as you can keep those two things lined up, you're in the right place. Typically, you're about six feet away in a snowbird performance. You're maybe 10 feet away in a fighter uh, tactic. But uh, basically, it becomes really a, a matter of just natural movement. You just watch, and, and as soon as you see any movement of the, the other aircraft that you're following, you make an appropriate throttle or, or aileron or rudder input. So it's really not very hard, but it takes a lot of practice, and, and people get to be really good at it. The Snowbirds are among the best uh, aerobatic teams in the world, and they really do a magnificent show. But it's, it's hard work, and it is occasionally dangerous, because you're very close to another aircraft, and contact between aircraft can take you down easily. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if you're six to ten feet away, that's like nothing. Uh, and any deviation, <laughs> you could be buffeted by, say, a gust of wind or something like that. Wouldn't that just change the course well, you of the can, plane? You can be, and in fact you are, but the good news is the plane beside you is usually buffeted by much the same uh, <laughs> wind, and therefore he moves, you move, and everything is all right. If it were possible for one plane to hit a gust and another guy not, that would be very bad. But it, it's not quite as hard as it looks, I have to admit. You get to be pretty good at it. Of course, I get 25 years of doing it. So uh, in that period of time, I hope I became fairly reasonable. But the point is that it takes total concentration. And when, when you're doing a show, which probably in the Snowbirds, they're probably flying maybe 350 to 400. It wouldn't be over 400 miles an hour, which is the beauty of the Tudor, the, the aircraft flown by the Snowbirds, because they can stay close in in front of the crowd. If you're going 1,000 miles an hour, which, of course, you aren't in an air show because you'd be breaking the sound barrier, but let's say you were going 600 miles an hour, which you could do, it means you've got a great big turning circle and you disappear from the view of the audience for part of the time. The snowbirds can stay right there in front of you and do all these magnificent formation changes. It's a pretty impressive show they put on, one of the best in the world, I think. So what about Captain Casey? Uh, lost her life, 35 years of age. Yeah. How much... Uh flight time would she have had uh, what does it require i mean is there a certain threshold you have to meet before you draw the assignment or you get recruited to be part of the aerial demonstration well, remember captain casey is a public affairs officer she was not a pilot she was not flying controlling the aircraft she was sitting beside the pilot who was doing it 
so for her, I mean, she was a, a magnificent public affairs officer, as far as I understand, and a beautiful girl from looking at pictures of her. But she didn't have to fly the airplane. It's the guy that was sitting beside her who's now in hospital with undefined injuries. Uh, he's the one who was flying. But when you encounter an emergency of this sort, you, you almost have to react instinctively. We used to say to, to trainee pilots, you must have your ejection decision made before you ever start the engine of the aircraft. So you say to yourself, if I'm out of control at 1,000 feet, I'm not even going to try to regain control. I'm going to reach for the handles and eject right now. And in a two-seat airplane like the Tudor where you're side-by-side, side, if one pilot ejects, the other seat is automatically ejected, even if it's empty. So you saw two ejection seats coming out of that plane, but what you didn't see was two parachutes deploying and lowering the pilots gently to the ground. In this case, they were so close to the ground that they disappeared behind the terrain and the uh, houses and whatnot before you ever saw a shoot. I'm not entirely sure that either of them got a fully deployed shoot, but the, the pilot who survived obviously made a better landing than uh, Captain Casey. I'm told now that the government's looking at replacing the Tudor jets sometime <laughs> in the next seven or eight years. I mean, it, would that be folly to do, or is there a better plane perhaps to train on and to fly in these demonstrations? Well, there's not a better plane. Uh, the problem is this. How much money do you want to spend on entertaining the public? And the fact of the matter is it might cost up to a billion dollars to buy six or seven or nine or whatever number they decided replacement aircraft. Or, of course, they could say, we're going to use some of our F-18s and do this. There are The U.S. Navy Blue Angels fly F-18s the same as, as the air, aircraft that we have. The basic point is, how much does the Canadian government want to spend on this? And the fact of the matter is, the Canadian government is notoriously cheap and doesn't want to spend much. That's why we're still using the Tudor. But the Tudor is an excellent airplane. It just happens to be the perfect thing for the job they're now doing with it. And it was the perfect thing as a training aircraft. What we would get next, we could get the Hawk like the uh, the Brits have. We could get the Alpha Jet like the French or the Fracchi Tricolori, the Italian team have. But in each case, it's going to be an expenditure of millions of bucks. And do you want that money to be spent? You as a taxpayer who are already worried about when tax freedom day comes. So the, the fact of the matter is it's hard to get Canadians to come up with a whole bunch of money. I think that it's more likely if they decide not to continue with the tutor that they'll shut the team down entirely, which would be a tragedy. Yeah, it's uh, renowned, obviously. It's part of, uh, you know, the shared cultural references here of Canadians for several generations now. Uh, yeah, that's a tragedy against the backdrop of that, uh, having lost another individual. In, that's uh, right. Yeah. And you were right. There have been eight fatalities thus far in the history of the snowbirds. And, and should eight people die for this? Well, that's not, of course, that's not the plan. But we know that we will lose people periodically. I've lost some friends, and everybody who's a flyer in the Air Force has. But it's something that you accept as just a risk that has to be uh, undertaken. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.